Hi friends. I uh, recently started reading the book The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Villados. He begins his, his book by talking about how in the movie The Titanic, there's this disturbing contrast after the ship hits the iceberg. On the top deck, everything seems fine. Life continues, the music, the food, it's all being served, everything's good. Down below, though, the reality of the situation is uh, very obvious. The water is rushing into the ship. The ship is sinking. We are in trouble. Um, and he just draws this comparison to our lives. And he says, how often is it that on one level of our life, we, we just function in oblivion to the deeper realities, the deeper issues that are happening in our life? And, and we, we sometimes just keep living in this oblivion to what's happening inside of us until it's too late, until the water is up to the top and the ship is sunk. Rich Villados writes, but notoriously, we don't take time to go deep down within because we have often been discipled into superficiality. The iceberg is something that is 90% underwater. It remains unseen. And so here's the question for you. How much of your life do you think that Jesus is interested in transforming? Is the 10% that everyone can see, is that what Jesus cares about? Or, or is Jesus interested in transforming all of us? Maybe especially that 90% that is known only to you and to Jesus. In Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, what we discover is that Jesus is going to go for that 90% of our lives that remain unhidden, that remain hidden, uh, unseen by those around us. Jesus' teaching here refuses to let us be discipled into superficiality because the words of Jesus keep going deeper and deeper into what is happening deep down inside of us. So I feel like we're ready to get into these teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, right? We have listened as Jesus taught us the way of the kingdom heart, uh, these beatitudes, the upside down values and attitudes of those who follow Jesus. We are ready because we know the key to interpreting this passage, right? We've already cheated. We skipped to the end. We know that this teaching is supposed to be immensely practical, something that is lived out and obeyed. We know that this is a teaching that is supposed to be lived out in obedience to form a new kingdom culture in the world, that we are called to be salt and light to those around us. We are ready for this teaching because we are coming with the posture of the student. We are asking Jesus to teach us how to be kingdom people. And so Jesus begins to lay out the ethics of the kingdom, to, to teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he begins like this. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if you say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. 
Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge, and the judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. And I say to you, in all seriousness, that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better to lose part of your body than your whole body go into hell. You can feel it right away, can't you? That desire to domesticate, to tame the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus can't really be saying, don't be angry and don't lust, can he? Like, that seems impossible. Surely this is an ethic for, for once we're in heaven. Or, or surely he, Jesus is just exaggerating to, to help us see that these things are really bad. And, and yet Jesus seems deadly serious, doesn't he? Can I suggest to you that what Jesus is teaching us is what Scott McKnight calls this ethics from beyond. And much like we believe that the kingdom of God is already at work in our world while not fully here, so Jesus teaches us an ethic that is meant to be lived and worked for now, even if it will always be done imperfectly. There are two background pieces that I want you uh, to hear in this passage. The first is that this word that is translated hell is Gehenna. And Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom, just south of Jerusalem. It it was a garbage dump. It was a constant smoking valley of fire where people threw their trash. So the image that Jesus is using is one that his listeners would know. They could actually picture it. It is a physical place that they could identify. It is not some supernatural after-death place. It is... uh, It is a place that they knew and had a physical location. Now, there were some connections in the time of Jesus being drawn between Gehenna and a life after place of judgment. But but it still remains that for the listeners of Jesus, it would have remained for sure a both and language of hell. It is a reality now and something that could come. And so as I read these verses, one of the things that strikes me is that God's judgment here is not just some arbitrary punishment that catches up to us after we die. The judgment of our anger and our lust begins right now. It is very possible to be caught up in the fires of hell on earth, that those who live angrily in this world can be like a steaming pile of trash, that those who let their lusts run wild, let the fire and destruction of Gehenna or hell burn out of control and it will cause untold destruction. It seems to me that these warning statements here are a statement of God's concern for us. Jesus loves you too much to let the fires of hell continue burning you, to let you wait for some final judgment to correct us. What I hear Jesus say here in verse 22, when you are in danger of the fiery hell, is the concern of a God who does not want to see us destroy our own humanity with our anger and our lust. Sure, there are eternal consequences for how we live our lives. However, as you read these verses, I I think it's clear that Jesus is certainly talking about the effect and the toll and the cost for our lives here and now if we decide to ignore his teaching. The second thing to notice is that there is a lot of exaggeration and hyperbole 
in this passage, right? We see clearly in verse 29 to 30, Jesus talks about cutting off your hand or plucking out an eye. I did meet a man once who only had a left arm and someone told me that this was because he had literally read this passage and cut off his arm. But I, I think that most of us know that Jesus does not mean literally cut out your eye or your arm. Uh, he is using strong language to tell us how much this matters. We might miss it, but Jesus uses the same exaggeration in verse 23 when he talks about leaving your offering at the altar and going to reconcile with your brother and sister. Most of Jesus' listeners were living in Galilee. That's where Jesus is giving this teaching. The trip from Galilee to Jerusalem would, would take three days. And so imagine the crowd giggling as they hear Jesus talk about this three day, taking a three-day journey to Jerusalem, buying your lamb. You're standing there waiting for your turn to sacrifice the lamb at the altar. And all of a sudden you remember, ah, oh, man, I have a brother and sister who are upset with me about something. And so you leave your live lamb there in line at the altar altar, you take a week-long journey to travel back to Galilee, reconcile, and then come back to the altar to leave to, to sacrifice your animal. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. No one would do that in the same way that you don't cut off your arm if it causes you to sin. However, the, the language here should alert us. Jesus is being serious. We are dealing with big things here. And so Jesus begins to teach, and he starts with this common outward wisdom. Everyone knows this. You can see it, right? There's nothing new in which he says, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Everyone agrees with that, even if it's not universally applied. Uh, don't murder, don't cheat on your spouse. Okay, we get it. But Jesus is the one who brings this new and better covenant. He peels back the curtain of this common outward wisdom, and he gives us an insight into God's mind, into the heart of God, what God wants for his people. Jesus goes beyond this common outward cultural wisdom and addresses that 90% of our life that lives out of sight of everyone else. And Jesus says, with his inward challenge, he says, keep your anger in check. Deal with your lust. What we see is Jesus is teaching his disciples a way of love, a love that comes out of the heart, a love that does not just keep the rules, but actually goes further and deeper. Love goes further than not murdering. Love is not angry. It shows patience and commitment to reconciliation. Love goes further than not committing adultery, but is characterized by faithfulness of the heart and self-control. Jesus internalizes the law. It isn't only murder, but anger, not adultery, but also lust that is ruled out. Jesus says, this is not just about what people can see, but it's about what's happening in the heart that matters. It is the kingdom heart that leads to an outward kingdom culture. So let's say a couple things about each of these murder and anger and lust and adultery. First, with anger. Jesus here is probing beyond murder, but to the desire that lies behind it. Doesn't it seem unfair? I mean, who's never been angry? Uh, how, who could possibly live up to this? And some people are quick to point out, well, Jesus got angry, and there are passages in the Bible that talk about God getting angry. So, so we'll interpret this passage to mean that it isn't anger that Jesus warns us about, but it is the wrong kind of anger, which I understand the sentiment behind, right? Because uh, I, I get angry, and so I'd like some justification for my anger. But is that what Jesus teaches? Is that what the scriptures say? Let's, let's consider a couple other passages about anger. Psalm 37 verse 8 says, Let go of anger and leave rage behind. Don't get upset. It will only lead to evil. 
Actually, uh, the only semi-positive New Testament passage about anger is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where Paul says, Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. And so even in that passage, Paul doesn't actually condone anger. It's more a recognition that when you live in a community of people, people are going to make you angry, and you have to deal with that right away. You have to be quick to reconcile. You have to leave your sacrifice at the altar and get things right before it festers and grows and becomes a steaming pile of fire and garbage. We know that that's what Paul means because in the next verse, 431, uh, Paul says, put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander along with every other evil. So what's anger? It's evil. Perhaps maybe the most important verse in Jesus, it comes from Jesus's brother in James 1.20. James writes, this is because an angry person doesn't produce God's righteousness. Now it seems fairly clear to me that anger is not to be part of our life. I've heard Bruxy Cavey say that, that anything that anger can accomplish, love can do better. I think about how sometimes in our hunger and thirsting for God's justice, for the oppressed, we can be moved to anger. And yet it seems that Jesus is teaching us not to feed that. Because to feed our anger is to put ourselves in danger of becoming a smoking fire of hell. A pot, uh, to become a Gehenna, to lose some of who we were meant to be in our humanity. Yes, hunger and thirst for justice, but remember, anger doesn't produce God's justice. Anger does not produce the fruit God wants in his people. People who are quick to reconcile, who don't let anger fester when the sun goes down. As I read this passage, what strikes me is Jesus is teaching us that we are responsible for living intentional lives of reconciliation. It, it has to be our life, lifestyle. Reconciliation becomes our desire. Did you notice in the story about the temple that the person doesn't realize that they have something against their brother and sister, but it's that their brother and sister or sister has something against them? Jesus is teaching a way of life that makes reconciliation something that we pursue. He puts the call of reconciliation on the believer. The other thing that strikes me in this passage is that Jesus seems to be saying reconciliation even takes precedence over worship. Leave your animal at the altar. Go get reconciled. You and I are called to live radically reconciled lives. N.T. Wright says about this passage, and if you are the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls them names, the fire inside you may eventually become all that's left of you, as Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump of ancient Jerusalem, may take you over completely. So watch your heart. Don't let the fires of anger destroy you. And then there's this passage about lust. Again, like anger, Jesus is pulling things back. He's going deeper into the heart of the issue. He isn't just talking about adultery, but the desires that lead to adultery. Jesus demands of his followers a transformation of their hearts and minds. Adultery for Jesus is deepened. It is redefined. It is taken to the level of desire. And Jesus is clearly against sexual fantasizing about the inappropriate person. Why? Well, because as James writes, everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They are lured away and enticed by them. Once those cravings conceive, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it, up, it gives birth to death. Now, James isn't exclusively talking about sexual sin here. It's the pattern is the same for all of our sin, be it our anger, our malice, our greed, our pride. There is a craving, and when it is fed, it grows. And so when Jesus says, when it comes to adultery, adulterly, deal ruthlessly with the first signs of lust. 
Now, Jesus does two unexpected things within this context that he writes, this male-dominated, patriarchal, chauvinistic world that he lives. He One is, he says, it matters whether the man commits adultery, because the world he lived in, it, it was the woman. If she committed adultery, that was a big deal. If a man did it, meh, whatever, big deal, right? And Jesus doesn't pull that. He says, no, he, he expects that men will be faithful and that adultery matters no matter who does it. The second thing he does is that he expects men to be able to control their desires. Now, if you never grew up in the evangelical purity culture world, uh, what I'm going to say next might just sound crazy to you. But for those who grew up in the heyday of evangelical purity culture and evangelical marriage books, uh, we need to name a really dangerous anti-Jesus teaching, which goes like this. It is the girl's fault if a man lusts, and it's the wife's duty to satiate her husband's desires, and if she doesn't, then it's her fault if her husband strays. These two ideas permeate a lot of common evangelical Christian marriage and dating books. And, and it's simply not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that not only are men and women capable of self-control, they are responsible for themselves. No one is responsible for the thoughts that happen in your mind but yourself. The warning here is similar to that of anger. Watch what you are doing because you are playing with fire. And if you keep throwing kindling onto that spark of lust, the fire will get out of control, will spread and burn until the whole valley is aflame. Now, Jesus' teaching here is not anti-sex. Jesus isn't looking to suppress sexuality. However, however, Jesus is directing it to the right place. Jesus teaches that sex is meant for marriage and marriage for only one person. Scott McKnight writes about this passage, God has wired us for sexual fidelity and lifelong rugged commitments to, to, of love to one person. Hearts are wired to brains and brains are wired to commitment. I get that it sounds old-fashioned, maybe unrealistic to some, and yet Jesus never shies away from strong, demanding calls to obedience. The call to purity in regards to sex is really no different today than it was in the time of Jesus or Paul. It is still difficult. It is still countercultural. But the way of Jesus is the way of self-control and faithfulness. Now, when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, we know that this is the ethical teaching of Jesus. It is a new way of living and being in the world that Jesus is moving his people toward. And what is so important, though, is that we see that while Jesus is giving us this command for us to obey, he does not leave us alone to do it on our own. In fact, every one of these next few sections in Matthew 5 has a fruit of the Spirit, a gift of God in the Spirit living in us to help us live it out. Galatians 5, 16 to 26 contrasts these two ways of living, right? And Paul writes, I say, be guided by the Spirit and you won't carry out your selfish desires. A person's selfish desires are set against the Spirit and the spirit is set against one's selfish desires. They are opposed to each other, so you shouldn't do whatever you want to do. And then he lists some of the actions that, uh, that uh, from our spirit that are opposed to God. And in that list are sexual immorality, losing your temper, hate, anger, those roots of desire of adultery and murder. And in contrast to this, the way of Jesus is the fruit of the spirit of love of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so I want to conclude with this thought. Where we feel angry, where the desire to, where we have this desire not to be reconciled to people, Jesus invites us to surrender to the Spirit and allow the Spirit to grow within us. Peace, patience, and gentleness. 
that we would not be angry, but that we would be patient with those who frustrate us. Let us be people who do not allow anger to grow, who don't feed the fire of our anger, even when we might be justified to be angry. Let us choose the way of reconciliation, letting the fruit of God's Spirit grow, that fruit of patience grow up in us more and more each day. When we when we feel that pull of lust, the temptation to fantasize and feed those fires, may we surrender to the Spirit and allow the Spirit to grow in us self-control and faithfulness. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates Galatians 5.16 this way, May my counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsion to, of selfishness. I love this incredibly challenging text of Jesus as he teaches us how to live in this world, but then he gives us the tools in which to do it. I love this counsel of Paul. Live freely, animated, motivated by God's Spirit. It is God's Spirit of love within us from which we find patience and self-control and faithfulness to freely live as Jesus requires. Amen.